Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Business Writers Radio. Brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. Welcome to another exciting and informative edition of Business Writers Radio. Stone Peyton Lee Cantor here with you. How are you, man? I am doing great. How about you? I am doing well. This is going to be a fantastic segment. Uh, We get a chance to welcome back to the Business Radio X microphone a gentleman with seven-figure sales tools. Please join me in welcoming to the broadcast, Mr. Lloyd Lofton. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Listen, I really appreciate you guys opening up that traffic for me to make it down here. You're welcome. (laughs) Made some calls. They heard you're going to be online. They said, get out of the way, move over, let this guy Lloyd has to make it into the studio. That's right. So, Lloyd, can you share a little bit about what you're doing for folks, seven-figure sales? I started with John Hancock in 1977. John Hancock. John Hancock Insurance Company. Oh, I didn't know. The original. The original. No, the Declaration of the, Independence the, guy. The one and only. I didn't get a signature. <laughs> I'm a little little younger than that. but So I started as a debit agent uh, back in 1977. I moved over to Combined Insurance Company in the mid-'80s. I was a field trainer and a regional with them. And over the years, in running sales distributions and working for insurance carriers, running their captive shops, I've done a lot of training with thousands of agents. And the, the three things that I always hear from training is, number one, do you have a copy of it? Back in the old days, it was, do you have a tape of it? Then is, do you have a CD of it? Now it's, do you have a podcast of it? Then the second thing I always hear from agents is, what would work for them? I mean, everybody and their mother's got some kind of seven-figure, six-figure, seven-step, five-step sales training out there. And what I think salespeople are looking for is a a training that speaks to the way they sell. And then the third thing that happens is I work with broker-dealers across the country and uh, small businesses that are looking to get more floor traffic in their business, is they want to know how to transfer the knowledge or skills that they have onto their employees or their salespeople. So sales training isn't just about learning how to get uh, consumers interested in your product or service and writing a check. Sales training is really about creating a culture in your company that engages people and makes people want to do business with you. Now, what percentage of sales training is recruiting the right person to be in sales? Well, I would tell you that before you recruit the right people in sales, you have to have the right culture. You have to have the right attitude and management. Uh, You can recruit 2,000 salespeople in, but if your culture isn't to train them on the things you want them to do the most in the order you want them to do those things, if your culture isn't one of expectations where you expect people to do well, you know, the irony in most businesses is that if a salesperson makes a sale, they get a lot of applause like they did something special. And the last time I checked, the last salesperson I hired, I hired them to actually make sales. So (laughs) when they made a sale, it wasn't that they did anything special. They did what I hired them to do. I mean, if somebody hires you to work 8 to 5 and you show up at 8, they don't get a group of people together and clap and go, yay, Lord showed up on time. That's kind of what you're supposed to do. So the, the percent of people that come in that are successful in sales is directly related to the culture that they work in and the expectations that they have. The, the biggest challenge I have in work, I was in Indianapolis a couple of weeks ago working with a, a call center, and I had 40 people in the room. And as I'm going around the room, it became pretty clear that their frame of reference, the call center people, the people that are on the phone selling the product or service, their frame of reference is their job is to get a sale. Now, the problem with having a frame of of mind that your job is to get a sale is you tend to rule people out, not rule them in. 
So you're looking for someone that will buy from you, right? The problem may be that instead of looking for people to buy from you, because that narrows the market that you have to work with, uh, that casts a, a, a more narrow net, maybe you need to find people that are willing to have a conversation with you. Maybe you need to find people that are willing to share information with you. And then in sharing that information, they determine that, in fact, you do have a product or service that will meet a need for them. So I would, I would say that, uh, that the key to bringing on salespeople that are going to get you the results you, you uh, are expecting, the results that will take you to the next level, is train salespeople on the things you want them to do the most in the order you want them to do those things, and then reward the behavior you want them to repeat. Now, do you think that you can take anybody off the street and make them a salesperson if the culture is right? Okay, I'm going to give you an illustration. Uh, you know, like I, some people say they have a, a face for radio. So I'm going, to give you, <laughs> I'm going to give you an illustration that works better on a whiteboard, so I'll try and paint a picture for it. You know, good stories are about people, not things. So what most businesses do, what most sales managers do, what most hiring managers do, is they hire people based on their perception of that person having the ability to do the job, right? Right. And the reason that they hire someone because their perception is that person has the ability to do the job is they think if that person has the ability to do the job, that person will get results. And then you always, the, the most famous salesperson in any industry is the 90-day wonder. You know, the guy's six foot two, he's got a washboard stomach, you know, fitted suit on. He talks good, looks good, smells good. So we're on radio, but that's exactly the way you look. <laughs> you talked to my wife, right? She sent the 30-year-old picture. So then what happens is after 90 days, people go, where's Bob? And that guy becomes a 90-day wonder. And the problem was that the leadership, the management in the company, they hired someone they thought had the ability to get results, but they didn't test if that person had the willingness to do the activity necessary to get the results. So can you take a new person that's never been in sales and teach them sales? Well, I would tell you, if they've ever been on a date, they probably know how to sell. If they've ever gotten a job, they probably know how to sell. No one pointed out to them the things they were doing that helped them get that date or get that job. So I would look for people that are willing to do the activity. So for example, if I had a call center, are they willing to make 80 phone calls a day? Are they willing to have two and a half hours talk time every day? If I was hiring salespeople, for example, in a retail store, are they willing to engage people that walk in the store? Are they willing to learn how to ask questions and listen for, for information and not ask questions listening to reply? Most people listen to reply. They don't listen to understand. So if I'm hiring salespeople, I want to see if the salesperson is willing to do the activity necessary to get the results. I can train the ability. I mean, and unless the person is not willing to learn, I can train the ability. But if you hire someone based on what you think is their ability to do something, I mean, a lot of sales is just human nature, right? I mean, you, you, you've bought a car before, right, Lee? Yes. And you, oh, yeah. So you've gone into a dealership and bought a car before? So let's just look at predictable buying behaviors. You, you drive on a dealership lot, the car sell, you get out of your car, the car salesman comes up and says, can I help you? And you say, I'm just... Looking. So you're a liar too, right? <laughs> I mean, salespeople get all freaked out because they think the prospect lied to them. But the truth is, we all lie. Now, when you told the salesperson, I'm just looking, the car dealership is a destination spot. It's not like you were driving down the street and you said, what the hell, let's go look at a car, they right? got free hot dogs. Free hot dogs, <laughs> yeah. You pull in there on a Saturday, feed mm -hmm. your kids and get out of there. So the truth is, it's not that you weren't interested in looking at a car. You just don't want to be 
sold, right? Right. So you say the car salesman, I'm just looking. Then two and a half hours later, you drive out of the dealership. You spent more money than you said you were going to spend, and you got a brand new car. But let's look at the buying behavior. So before you bought the car, did you test drive the car? Yes. Now, when you test drove that car, before you left the dealer's lot, you get in the car, the car salesman's in the car with you. Did you adjust anything? Yes. Like, what did you adjust? The seat. The, the mirrors. Seat, the mirrors. Why are you adjusting those things? To drive it safely. Are you adjusting those things to make it fit you? Yes. Now, the irony is we adjust the things we use the most in the order we use those things. So what do you adjust? When I'm sitting in the car? Yeah. I got short legs, so the first thing I got to do is move the seat Pull up. that seat up. Yeah. So some people will adjust the air conditioner. Some people will adjust the radio. We adjust the things we use the most in the order we use those things. Now, here's the irony of it. You take that car off for a test drive. Now, it, I think it's kind of funny to even say test drive. What do you actually test? I mean, does anybody stop, get the jack up, take the wheel off, and check the, the brakes in the car? No. Does anybody take the manifold off and make sure the pistons are working right? No, we test the things we use the most in the car. We test the feel of it, the comfort of it. Then you get back to the dealership, and, and you go to park the car, and where's the car salesman have you parked the car? Right next to yours, right? Right. So you can see what a piece of crap you're driving? <laughs> and when you get out of the car with the car salesman, where do you go? The sales office. You go in the sales office. Are you going in the sales office to discuss which car you might buy? Or are you going in the sales office to discuss how much you're going to pay for that car? The latter. For that car. Yeah. And the reason is you've already taken emotional ownership over that product. So the question I ask all sales organizations, all managers, all salespeople when I when I work with them, is what can you do? What can you say? What story can you tell about someone who's used your product or service that will put the prospect in the position of adjusting your product or service to fit them? Mm -hmm. People buy on emotion or move to action by logic. So you have to engage people in your product or service. And most likely, what people are engaged in is not your product or your service. People buy results. They don't buy product or services. So again, to go back to your uh, pointed question, can you take a brand new person and teach them sales? If they have the willingness to do the activity necessary to get results, I think I can teach them the ability. So how do you go about uncovering the willingness? Because I have a tendency to you know, believe what they tell me if I'm in a recruiting mode. Are there some ways to, to really determine if this person is going to be willing to do what it takes? That's a great question. There's an old saying in sales, you believe what people do. And you listen to what they say. So I like to give people assignments. So I, I ran a career distribution for a large Midwestern insurance company. We hired 2,000 salespeople in one year. We did $50 million a year in sales. And what I had is a three-step process for salespeople. So I'll give you just the recruiting part of it. So if I'm, if I'm on the phone with you and I'm recruiting you to come to my sales meeting to, so for us to talk and decide if I'm going to hire you or not, I'm going to give you some assignments. So one of the things I might say to you is our, we have a briefing that starts at 9 o'clock. I need you to come in about 15 minutes early, kind of like what you guys did, right? On, right. The, on the information you sent me, you wanted me here 15 minutes early. Right. Uh, I tell them, come in business attire, and then I tell them I have a one-page form to fill out, kind of like what you guys did, right? You had me fill out this, this form online for you. Right. And then I watch what they do. Recruiting starts with the very first contact. In that phone conversation, when I'm inviting them to come in and meet with me, one of the things I say to them after I give them the directions of 4215 Tennessee Avenue, we're in Marietta, Georgia. I asked them, can you read those directions back to me just to make sure I gave it to you correctly? 
Because here's a little trick in recruiting. If they can't read the directions back to you, they're not coming. (laughs) (laughs) Save everybody some time. (laughs) Yeah, they're not coming if they can't read the directions back. And then the last thing I say to them on the phone when I say, I'll see you Tuesday at 8.45, because we start at 9 o'clock promptly, is are you good at keeping commitments? And the reason I say that is recruiting starts with the very first contact. The culture and attitude of a business starts with the very first contact. If you want to know what the culture of an organization is, call their 800 number. Call their 800 number, ask for product, marketing, and service, and see what happens with the connection. See how you get connected through. So I watch them. If they show up at 10 minutes after 9, when they're supposed to be there at 9, I know they'll be late for every meeting that I have scheduled. If I tell them to come in business attire and they come in jeans and a pullover shirt, I know that when I have important meetings with important people there, they'll never be dressed correctly. And if I tell them I have a one-page form I need them to fill out, I know for a fact that all their sales paperwork will always be filled out incorrectly because they weren't willing to do what was necessary to even get the job, much less have the job. Does that make sense? It makes all the sense in the world. So when you're delivering this training, walk us through that. Does it start with visiting with the, the senior execs and getting your arms around what the, what the culture is? or what, what does your process look like when you go into an organization? That's a great question. So I have three, three ways that you can get my sales training. You can go online to Seven Figure Sales Tools, and you can join the membership site. So individually. I, I could join individually and just and, and learn that way, okay? Correct. So we have uh, 167 videos on there, 546 lessons, a whole bunch of stuff on there. For example, when I did the call center in Indianapolis uh, a couple of weeks ago, once I signed the contract with them, what I did is I went to the principal that is one of the partners of the broker-dealer. I went to their LinkedIn page. And from their LinkedIn page, on the right-hand side on LinkedIn, it lists other people that work in that organization. Right. And I started going to the people that I would be training, the call center people, the marketers, some of their top executives, the people I'd be training. I started going to their LinkedIn page, and then I scrolled down to recommendations those people had gotten, recommendations those people had received from their customers. And then I started looking for adverbs, verbs, and pronouns. So I looked for words that indicated what their customers got from them. And it wasn't that they had 250 carriers or any of the things that you typically think about. It was comments like a salesperson that said, Bob, help me make $100,000 a year. So I made a list of those out of about 15 people. It was uh, almost one and a half pages long. When I met with the, the 40 people and the principals of the company, I on the on a, the whiteboard, again, this is kind of like having a face for radio. If you draw Ben Franklin, which is a line down the sheet of the paper in the middle, a line down next to it, on the first column, you write down what I have. On the second column, you write down what can I get in the marketplace. And in the third column, you write down why me. Then I had everybody in the room do that exercise. So what does this broker-dealer have? And they list the things that they have to offer. Then I had to make a list of what that salesperson could get out in the community. And they made a list of that. So if, they're, if they didn't go to work for that organization, what could they get out in the marketplace? If it's a c- customer they're selling to, what could that customer get out in the marketplace? And then in the third column, I had them write down, why, why us? And the irony of it is of everything they wrote down there, not one person that worked there, not one of the 40 people, some of those call center people were making $200,000 a year. Not one of them wrote down that what the customer got what the salesperson got that came and marketed their products was them. 
They didn't see themselves as having value. They didn't see themselves as a reason why someone would come on board with them. So the irony of that is that when I said, would you like to hear who your customers think you are? Would you like to hear what your customers think your, your best product and service is? And then I spent almost 15 minutes reading what the customers of these marketers said about them. So the most up-to-date information, timely information, always there when I need to make a phone call, has helped my business grow. I read those things. And I had, I had to point out to the principal of the company that telling people, a salesperson that you have 250 products means nothing to them. Yeah. Great stories are about people, not things. And you have great stories from your customers saying how your people help them make $100,000 a year and you're not even talking about it. So, you know, sales training, leadership training isn't your typical stuff. I mean, truthfully, if I was back running a career distribution for an insurance company again and I wanted training for my people, I would never hire somebody like me. And the reason I wouldn't is because I want somebody that can talk their language. Uh, I, with this insurance company I worked with in Des Moines, Iowa, the CEO came down to our work area one time and he sat on my cubicle because that's where you worked. And he said, we're hiring this marketing company to do a market survey for us. They were going to spend $20,000. And he asked what I thought about it. And I said, well, I have 180 salespeople on the street every day writing business. If I want to know what my market is, if I want to know what the most competitive product is, in Indianapolis or in Atlanta, Georgia, or in Phoenix, Arizona, if I want to know what product we go against the most, what's the price break, I can make three phone calls in 30 minutes and have that information. I think spending $20,000 on that is a total waste of time. You should take that $20,000 and you should put up promotions. Promotion drives production, production drives income, and income drives power. If you want your salespeople to feel powerful, invest that money in promotions and give them something to work, or, to work for. What most managers, what most leaders don't recognize when they think about building a sales force and growing a sales force and growing sales is a racehorse does not have an awareness of the finish line. <laughs> so when you go to a race, it's the jockey who pulls the racehorse back and tells them we're done racing. The same thing happens in business. Sales leaders and leadership in companies are the ones who determine what the finish line is. Salespeople don't know there's a finish line until you tell them there's a finish line. So I think that in order to, to help businesses grow, if I was going to go in and work with a business, I would do the exact same thing for them. I would find out who their customers think they are. And then in my first meeting with them, I would go, have them go through that exercise. In one column, write down what you have. In the second column, write down what your customer or your, the people you're hiring can get in the marketplace. And in the third column, why you? And I will bet you eight out of 10 of them will never write down their team. They'll never write down themselves because they don't see themselves as having value. Well, that's some really good advice and good information. Is this some of the stuff that you would find in your new book, The Sidewalk Executive? Yes. In fact, The Sidewalk Executive is kind of a takeoff of my combined insurance days. Uh, with combined insurance company, you went door to door. Uh, back then, we didn't have... Uh, FedEx, we didn't have ATMs, we didn't have debit cards, we didn't have cell phones. We still use the Thomas Guide with a flashlight and a magnifying glass <laughs> on Thursday night at 8.15 at night to figure out where the heck we were going. So back then, the training we did was just notes. We, we had uh, cassette players that we kept in our car. When we had great salespeople with us, we would record their pitch and their, 
their information on that. So people would ask me over the years, do you have this information written down somewhere? And I didn't have it written down. So I started with little one-page sheets, three-by-five cards, and I started with one-page sheets. I've got three file cabinets at home that are full of stuff from the last 30 years. And so a couple of years ago, I started putting this book together really as a format to, to augment the training I was doing. In fact, what got me into doing sales training full-time, the last time I was with you guys, which is about three years ago, um, I was running a marketing company here in Atlanta. We did credit card processing as mm-hmm. well as an insurance division. Well, we still do that. But I had a heart attack last year. In April, I was in, in Iowa visiting a couple of my, two of my kids that are still there, and I had a heart attack and had a pacemaker put in. And I've been telling my wife for some time that I wanted to have a full-time training and coaching business and get away from the day-to-day of running our business. So that's really what motivated me to do the to do the book. Now, there's a million books out there on how to sell, and they all involve techniques. My philosophy is you train people on the things you want them to do the most in the order you want them to do those things. So my book takes that process. It talks about how to build a, put together a business plan, a marketing plan, figure out what your lead source is, your lead uh, type is, then talks about how you approach those prospects, whether it's in a call center, whether it's a, a retail business, whether it's uh, a field agent out, a field salesperson out in the field. And then it goes through each of the selling steps. And then it ends with two scripts, one in the insurance or financial service industry and one in the credit card industry. So you can see how it's all put together. And the reason I called it the sidewalk executive is because as old door-to-door guys, we were, you know, I, I, I sat in a, a marketing meeting one time with uh, lawyers of this insurance company and we wanted to put magnetic signs on cars like Century Insurance does. Right. And the lawyer says, in this room with all these highfalutin, highly educated executives, the lawyer says, do we want that? Is that what we want for our brand? And I looked at him and said, our brand is a guy named Scott in Charlotte, North Carolina, who's about 5'4", weighs 260 pounds, pulls up in a smoking car in front of a prospect's house with a coffee stain on his Mm -hmm. shirt and knocks on the door. It's not that logo that you have on the side of your building (laughs) and all your paperwork that you think means so much. If the customer opens the door and lets Scott in his house, that's the company brand. And if if that having that sign on the side of the car will get Scott more business, you should be thrilled that he's willing to put your sign on his car. So the brand that companies have is the salesperson. The brand is whoever the lowest paid person is at, at the, the retail store. When you walk in, if you walk into Amco or That's if you walk into Petland or anyone else, yeah. whoever that person is that addresses your customer, you might think that brand that you spent all those hundreds of thousands of dollars getting is, your, is what your, cust- your company is to people, but it's not what your company is to people. It's that lowest paid person that interacts with your customer. That's who it is to your customer. So you mentioned that this book has been, I guess, a, a accumulation of all of your knowledge over the years, True. and then you decided to put it in book form. Can you talk about kind of the how you were able to do that? Was it just a matter of writing stuff down, or you would just compiled a bunch of past notes? You know, when it comes to sales, I, I believe that there should be a structured format to how you present things. So whenever I've done training over the years, I like to do uh, training in a structured format. So I thought when I decided to write the book, I thought, how would I tell someone? If I was just having a conversation with someone, how would I tell them how to go about this process? So you didn't want to do parable. There's been a few of those. Well, you know, in today's world, there's a million experts out there. Everybody and their brother has some kind of book out there. 
And the books typically follow some kind of standard format. And the format is rarely about the results that people are looking for. It's really about that process. So the book I wrote is about the way people use things and the way people do things. So if you're a person that sells on the phone and you're not comfortable going door to door and you buy a book about sales, you're probably going to flip through the sections that don't refer to the things that you have an interest in. You know, it's kind of like going to a party. Have you ever noticed if you're with a large group of people and you're talking to someone and they disagree with you, you think, that guy's kind of a moron, right? <laughs> but if they did, if they agree with you, you go, you know, that guy's pretty sharp. <laughs> so I wrote the book with that in mind. When people go through the book, I wanted them to be able to go through and find the sections that apply to them. Most people are not going to say, you know what, I'm an idiot and I need to start from step one. I have no clue what I'm going to do. Most people think, well, I already, I know how to get leads. So I don't really, I, I'm not looking for leads, but I have trouble opening a conversation and they'll flip to that part of the book. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the book is broken down. And how have you gone about promoting it thus far? The book was written to augment and supplement the training that I do. So I haven't invested in promoting the book in a typical way that you would promote the book for the purpose of having a bestseller. That means that I haven't sent a link out to Amazon uh, so that my 12,000 or 13,000 connections on LinkedIn will go out and pay 99 cents for the Kindle version so I can lie and tell people I'm a bestselling author. So what I've done is I've taken the book and used it as a product that, that uh, marries and matches the training I do with people. Um, but I may, I may start promoting the book on, on a more wide-scale basis, but that wasn't the purpose of writing the book. So the, the purpose was for what reason then? The purpose was to support the salespeople and the businesses that I help uh, grow their income. So my goal is to help salespeople uh, increase their income 50 to 40% in less than two weeks by instituting a few techniques and styles that will increase their activity, engage more prospects, and give them the opportunity to meet more needs. Now, has the book um, helped you get business or, or nurture existing business? Yeah, I think what the book has allowed me to do is to, to get follow-up business. So people who join the membership website get a signed copy of the book organizations that I go out and do work with. Everyone that is there gets a copy of the book. And what the book's been able to do is allow people to find parts of their own style and their own uh, areas that they want to grow in and then contact me to do more in-depth training, whether it's live training, on-site training, or, or webinar training on that particular section of the book. So it dovetails nicely with your existing business. It does. It does. Although, I, I again, I, I I'm looking to maybe do some other things with the book and concert with some other training tools that we've been developing. But yeah, Dove's Tales nice for it. It accomplished what the goal was when I wrote the book. So do you think you'll write more? Uh, absolutely. That's my third yeah. That's my third book. Okay, this is the third one. This is the third book, yeah. Yeah, and you have more in you. I have a lot more in me, yeah. <laughs> and according to my wife, I need to be doing this more than I need to be driving into Marietta from Conyers every day and running the marketing <laughs> company. But I don't want anyone to think that I'm a wimp here. I, I am the man. I am the husband. I have the last word in every argument. It's called yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, any advice for a new author other than uh, wait until you have a heart attack to get this stuff going? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would tell you that you can do this. I would tell you that writing a book is more about uh, telling your story than it is about getting stuff down on paper. I would tell you to start recording your story, whatever you think your story is, 
and then have what you record down as a transcript and then start editing the transcript. There's a couple of... Is that what you did? No, that's not what I did. Oh, that's for other people. Not but yourself, uh, do but. what I say, not what I do. <laughs> but but the difference is, I you know, I, I was working with a guy that paid me to do a private course for him uh, a couple of months ago. And in that in this private course, uh, it's $200, you get a coaching session from me. So I'm doing a coaching session from him. I write a lot of articles for industry-related magazines. So every month I've got an article in some magazine. And I commented on him because he belongs to his local Rotary Club about writing an article for the newsletter to start getting his name out there. Mm-hmm. And his comment to me was, I'm not a writer. So, yeah, if you're a writer, then, then I would tell you to just start writing your stories down. But in my experience is most people are not a writer. Most people are not good at writing, writing down what their skill set is, what the, their passion is, or the things that they're uh, the most competent at doing. Most people are much better at telling their stories. Like people, yeah. people come in here. What what makes Business Radio X su- such a viable commodity out in the marketplace is that people are good at telling their stories. What makes you guys great at what you do is that you're good at asking questions that open people up. Your questions are not designed for people to give um, just talking points or just one-minute blurbs on a radio show. You're asking questions for them to open up for to open up and to share stories because stories are about people. That's what makes stories interesting about people, not things. If someone came into to, to your radio show and you said, so tell us about your business, and they said, well, I, I uh, changed flat tires and I put new tires on a car. Your radio show would last like 30 seconds, right? <laughs> so people have to be able to tell interesting stories. And I think most people have an interesting story in them. I think most people's life experience is one that has the potential to be inspiring to other people, but maybe they don't know how to connect with that. So if they want to write a book, I would tell them, start your story, start keeping notes on your story, start listening to what other people say about your life and your experiences and the things you do. You know, we tend to slough off compliments. We tend to slough off things that people say about us that are good because most people are not accustomed to hearing that. And what I would tell you is start paying attention to the engagement you get from people. Keep notes about it. If you can talk about it, so that you get a transcript of it, then start doing your story. The best thing you can do, I would tell you to write a book, is get rejected. So write your story <laughs> down, send it into places, uh, and get rejected of it. You know, there's even a there's even a, a place called Business Writers Conference that gives up great information on that. I hear they even support a radio show. <laughs> I mean, I could rumor. be I could be wrong, but that's what I think I've heard. Yeah. Oh man, this has been a lot of fun. It, before we wrap, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to get in touch with you and learn more about your, your work. But I have a question, uh, and I think we've got time to, to cover it, and it's around measurement, ROI. When you're working with a, a new client in particular, how do you go about setting up expectations and monitoring and reporting on the return on investment for the, for the work that you do? do? Can you speak to that a little bit? So. For the work that I do or the work that they're doing? The, the work that you're doing. Like, they're going to engage you to work with their sales force. Do you get that question? You're like, what's the return on investment? What are the success metrics? I'm just wondering how you Yeah, I think it's a great question. It usually comes in the form of, we've done that before and it didn't work. Right. Or, or why should we hire you to do <laughs> That's this? the setup for the or, ROI question. Six, yeah. six Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's you. if they say ROI, I know they've already hired a consultant. Right. It didn't work out because they wouldn't be asking me that question. That's an acronym that they use because they paid to hear it. Uh, but so, it, so here's how I would do this. I can go in any sales office anywhere in the country, never having met a manager, 
And I can walk in his office and look at his call board. And that's where he keeps the results of the weeks written on the call board. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you the culture of that office. Because most organizations, they will tell you that the salespeople write 5,000 in business a week or whatever the number is. I go in and look at the call board. And if I find a salesperson on that call board that hadn't written business in two weeks, then I can tell them that the culture of their office is that the expectation is that you write zero business because you have a salesperson who's been here for two weeks without writing any business. So that the way I would do a call board is I want to recognize the behavior I want repeated. So what would be the return on investment in somebody like me coming in and working with your company? Well, where are your weaknesses at? Where are you losing sales at? What activity and, and skill sets do you need to engage more of? So if it's a sales organization and they're marketing a product, do your, does your salespeople need to make more phone calls or do they need to have more leads? Most salespeople will tell you that they need more qualified leads. I've never heard a salesperson that didn't say, I need more qualified leads. I have leads. too many leads. <laughs> yeah, too many leads. <laughs> then you need to get a job at McDonald's <laughs> immediately. And the reason for that is because you don't need leads at McDonald's. You get a guaranteed sale at McDonald's. <laughs> Everybody who walks at McDonald's buys something, right? Right. Fries, a Coke, or something. The salespeople will say, I, I need more qualified leads. And what I would tell salespeople is, I don't, maybe, maybe you need more qualified leads. But what I think you need are more leads to qualify. So if I go into an organization, I'm going to go through a questionnaire and we're going to figure out where they can pick up more activity that will generate revenue to the bottom line. So maybe you don't need me to come in and do a sales training. Maybe what we need to do is do an activity training. Maybe you need more salespeople involved in activity where it's making phone calls, engaging with the prospect more, however you, however your, your, your customers come to you. Maybe you don't need me to teach salespeople to close better. Maybe they need to learn a better sales presentation. I'll, I'll relate it to the insurance industry. There's three things a salesperson can't control in the insurance industry. You can't control the, the product, right? The insurance carrier designs the product. They file it with every state. You can complain about the product, but they're not going to change it for you. Right. You can't control the price. The price is approved by state departments of insurance. It's filed in every state. And you can complain about the price, but they're not going to change the price for you. And you can't control customer service. You may not like the way they do customer service, but if that's the way their customer service is done, when your customers call in, you can't control that. So what can you control? And this would be the conversation I would have with, with leaders that would, would want to bring me in to work with their team. What can you control? What can your team control? They can control, for example, for salespeople, they can control how many appointments they have each week, whether it's buying leads, making phone calls, however, whatever their lead generation process is. They can control that. So if it's a call center, they can control how many phone calls they make every day. They can control how many presentations they make by getting better on the phone call. And they can control how many closes they have by getting better on the sales presentation. So if you make 15 presentations a week and you're closing 10%, you're closing one and a half sales, right? If your commission's 500 bucks, you're making 750 bucks. So if all you do, if all you do is take your closing rate to 20%, you're now closing three sales and you've doubled your income, right? So let's figure out where you're going to get the most return on your investment for the activity that will directly affect your bottom line. But if you pay me to come in so that I can come back and tell you that your manager doesn't follow through with the agents and he doesn't do field training with the salespeople and that he doesn't scrub the paperwork before it's turned in and that's why you're having less business go out the door, 
then your problem isn't salespeople. Your problem is leadership, and we need to have a different conversation. So the return on investment is to look at the things that your salespeople do. What do they do that you want them to do more of so that it will directly impact the bottom line? And then train them to do more of that. People tend to do better when you reward the behavior you want them to repeat and when you acknowledge the things that they do well. You know, anybody that's married knows that if your wife tells you you're an idiot, you probably won't do more of what she just told you you're an idiot about. <laughs> so, so, so managers who, who criticize and put down salespeople and don't model the behavior they want the salesperson to repeat is most likely to get the behavior that they don't want. Well, what I'm realizing in hearing you talk about your work, even just modest increases, effectiveness, efficiency, performance in your arena can have some huge results. Absolutely. You I worked have major quantum leaps in this. I worked, I worked with a call center a, a while back, and, and they, were, they ran a, a TV ad. And in the TV ad, they gave away what they called an owl, a little pocket magnifying glass. So you call this 800 number, you get a, a, a quote. I don't know if we have time to tell you what I think about the word quote. And then they, <laughs> then they mail you this little pocket uh, magnifying glass. And their script when people called in was, hi, this is Lloyd Lofton with ABC Company. How can I help you? So when I sat in the call room for an hour and listened to people on the phone, I went back to the people that hired me and said, well, who wrote this script? I mean, are you, I thought you guys were a for-profit business. And they looked at me like I was from the moon. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't know you were a charity. What do you mean? You're, you, how can we help you? Don't you already know why people are calling you? I mean, you spent $250,000 to run a TV commercial for them to call in and get what? The magnifying glass. The magnifying glass. <laughs> why are you saying, can I help you? You already know why they're calling. Hi, this is Lord Love, the ABC company. Thank you for calling. What questions can I answer for you? And people will immediately go into the qualification part of the sales process. Well, I want to get that magnifying glass and get a quote. Okay, great. Let me, I've got your address here because it pops up on the computer. It's 4215 Tennessee Avenue, Marietta, Georgia. Is that correct? Listen, I'm going to get that magnifying glass out to you today. Here's how that works. Boom. They're in the process. They're in that sales we, in, in less than seven days, we increase the conversion rate 17% by just changing a couple of quick words. I always encourage them, don't use the word quote. So have either one of you been in a car accident before in your life? Yes. When you get in a car accident, do you call your insurance agent? Yes. Did he have you go out and get some prices to get it fixed? Yes. Did he have you get one price or more than one price? Uh, more than one, I guess. More than one price. Okay. So when you got that, he told you to get a quote, right? Go get a quote. Right. Now, when you got that first quote, Stone, did you get that first quote for the purpose of making a buying decision? Or did you get that first quote for the purpose of comparing to the next quote? For comparing. So why don't we just finish the sentence when we tell people, I want to give you a quote? Let me give you a quote because I know you're not buying today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's predictable buying behavior. If I give someone a quote, they're trained, right? They've been trained right. since they were a kid. They were with their dad when their dad went to three different all repair places to get a quote to get his car fixed. They saw two carpet companies come in and give a quote on carpet cleaning. They know what the, the word quote means. It means I'm not buying today. Right. You get a quote to compare to the next quote. So why do we use words? It's called a cue and a routine and a reward. We cue the consumer to object by using a word that they're already programmed to have a definition for. Can I give you a quote? Their routine is, yeah, I'd love to have a quote. Now the salesperson thinks, woo, man, I got a sale going on here. I'm going to make some money. Right. They get the quote and they say, thanks, I, I want to think about it. Well, no kidding. <laughs> we already know what the word quote means to them. So I, I talk about return on investment. If I can see the script or hear the script, I can already tell you where you're losing money, where you're losing engagement. Right. It's not about the sale. Quit looking for people to buy from you. Look for people that are willing to have a conversation with you 
Great stories are about people, not things. All right. Where can our listeners go to learn more, have a conversation with you, get their hands on this book? What's the best coordinates for them to uh, get into your world there? Appreciate you asking. Seven Figure Sales Tools, just like it sounds, dot com, Seven Figure Sales Tools. You can call 678-426-1506. You can go to Amazon and type in the Sidewalk Executive or Lloyd Lofton and get my book. Well, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon, Lloyd. And uh, we got to have you back, man. It sounds like you're going to continue to be busy, continue to to uh, generate more work. And uh, I look forward to the next book, too, man. I appreciate it. I like coming on here. You guys are great, great interviewers. All right. Until next time, this is Stone Payton for Lee Cantor, our fearless producer, Ryan Redhawk McPherson, our guest today, Lloyd Lofton, and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying we'll see you next time on Business Writers Radio. Business Writers Radio is brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. To learn more about developing a successful book and building your business around it, visit business-writers-exchange.com.